Welcome to The Pulse, brought to you by United Regional Healthcare System. I'm Henry Florsham with the Wichita Falls Chamber of Commerce. We are streaming live on Facebook and YouTube, and we'll be rebroadcast on KJTL Texoma's Fox 18 on Sunday. I think we've got our technology issues out of the way. My guest today, State Representative James Frank. Hey, Henry, good to see you, sir. Thanks for hey, James, you. welcome. Let, let's start off with a simple one. Give me your elevator pitch. Who is James Frank? Who is James Frank? Uh, uh, husband of 30, business person, uh, and uh, most recently state rep for the last eight years. Eight years. Seven, uh, almost eight years. Yeah, almost eight years. So share with the audience a day in the life of a state representative. Yeah, it totally depends whether we're in session or not. As you know, the Texas Ledge is in session 140 days every two years. And so the 140 days down in Austin is pretty much full-time legislative time. Uh, the rest of the time, the other 19 months, I'm in Wichita Falls. Um, I, I probably do spend about 70% of my time on political stuff, but it's mostly constituent you know, constituent uh, uh, requests or uh, issues. Um, working on policy, I go down to Austin a couple of times a month, and then uh, you know do business business stuff. Uh, you know we have Sharp Iron and Transland here in town, so we've got 140 employees, but I've uh, got really good folks running that, and uh, but I'm still reasonably involved in that. Uh, so tell us about your companies. You mentioned 70 percent of your time you think think is on uh, legislative issues when you're not it's on the $600 a month gig. Yeah, exactly. What? So tell me about your companies. Okay, so Sharp Iron, actually, you know, I was in banking until 2000. I bought a company called BW Fabricators north of town and later bought a machine shop. So that company is Sharp Iron. We make parts for other people. We make uh, really almost all out of metal. So we have a heavy welding shop, actually two shops. Um, and then um, we have a heavy fab, I'm sorry, we have a heavy fab shop. And then we have the sheet metal machine shop. So we build product for other people. Transland was a more recent, it was 2007, bought it out of California. Uh, it makes all kind of parts for crop dusting and firefighting airplanes. And in that case, it's our parts. We do the FFA, uh, the, sorry, the FAA certifications, um, the uh, patents, all that kind of stuff. We market it through dealers all around the world. Uh, and that one, we have about 40 employees in that. Um, so we make parts that disperse material out of agriculture and firefighting planes. How's we, that? Know, we know that Wichita Falls has a pretty good concentration of of uh, employees in the aerospace manufacturing business, and a lot of them are more uh, on the commercial side. Has your has your company dealing with agricultural aviation? Have have you taken uh, a hit? Have you seen a downturn like the like the other companies have? Knock on wood, we haven't yet. Actually, Sharp Iron does some of what you would call commercial aviation. We make parts for airplane companies, and that has certainly seen a a, a significant downturn. The agricultural aviation has really not yet. I think there's going to be some because of the weakness of the uh, Brazilian real, uh, which is gonna make parts, uh, US parts more expensive. And Brazil's a huge agricultural aviation market, but uh, so far, knock on wood, not a lot of uh, decline in that market. Uh, and most of our parts, about 80% of our parts are aftermarket parts. So as long as those planes are flying, they're gonna be buying parts. And so, sure. uh, so far, so good on that. So we've got a question from our Facebook audience, and we encourage everyone watching to, to post your questions. And this is from a, a chamber employee, Taylor Davis, wants to know, what inspired you to become an entrepreneur? You know, I, I mentioned I spent the first 11 years in banking, and I love banking and the financial side of it. But part of it, I, I, honestly, my wife and I wanted to live in Wichita Falls. And my next move, I was managing the commercial lending, and my next move was going to be out to a bigger city and I really, we wanted to live here, but we wanted to stay professionally challenged and, um, you know, honestly couldn't figure out a way to buy a bank at the time. And so, uh, um, you know, was looking for business opportunities and really the first one I found was a 11 man welding shop north of town. And uh, it was just something that I wanted to kind of, you know, sail my own ship kind of thing and just, uh, uh, you know, had the opportunity, had some people that believed in me and, uh, you know, help, helped uh, finance it. And so um, that's what I've done really for the last almost 20 years. What was the biggest surprise to you? What was the thing you didn't know when you got into that business? Oh, wow. Yeah, the list of things I didn't know was pretty long in that business. I was a uh, 
wet behind the ears, 33-year-old banker with three kids and one on the way getting into the world of manufacturing. And so there's a lot of things I didn't learn. I, I really had to figure out who who knew the stuff I didn't. Um, you know, but, I, you know, I think at the same time, you know, success happens not necessarily by uh, always making good decisions, but by persevering, you know, so I've made a lot of mistakes, but that's, uh, you know, most of the mistakes that you make don't kill you. So you talked a little bit about day in the life when you're not in session. What's it like when you're down there? Are you in the big chambers all the time? Are you in smaller meetings all the time? How, how does that work? No, it's a, yeah, it's great. It, it really, it's 140 days and it really is a 140 day pattern. You know, at the very start, you're getting organized. You elect a speaker, you do, you know, cause I'm in the house, you elect a speaker, bills are filed. Then as bills are filed, you start to spend more time in committees but the first 60 days, you don't spend any time on the floor because you, according to the Texas Constitution, you can't look at bills on the floor the first 60 days. As those 60 days, as you get past the 60 day mark, you start spending time in committee and in the floor. And then as you move on to about the 100 day mark, you're not spending much time in committee because if a bill hasn't made it through committee, it's dead. So almost all of your time then is spent on the floor. And every time you have uh a deadline, if you will, you end up spending till about 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night on the floor because that 140 days is when we do all of the work. All of the bills, about 1,200 of them, uh, end up getting passed. About 6,000 get filed. Um, and so especially the last 80 days really is really, really, really busy. The first 60 days is mostly organizing. The last 80 days is really more like playing whack-a-mole, um, trying to you know kill bad bills and then try to push your bills along. And then really, hopefully, the, the, the thoughtful work of the legislature, frankly, is mostly done during the interim. The interim, those 19 months, is where you, you know, honestly, that's where you work on the big policy. During session, you're just trying to either get it through or kill it. If that makes, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of whack-a-mole, the first, the first month or so of this COVID-19 mess, you and I talked almost every day. Yes, sir. Uh, back back when the county orders were changing on a regular basis, and so were the city, and we were waiting to see what the state was going to do. What describe that period for you? What what was your average day like while that was going on? Well, it, you know, it's just it's confusion, and I really I I appreciate. It. There's been a lot of criticism at all levels of government. The reality is, early on, especially in March, April, we were operating. It was like flying a plane in a clouds with no instruments. People didn't know how severe it was going to be. You didn't know what the impact, you didn't know how it was going to transmit. Trying to make decisions at that point is really, really tough. And so it, it was really, it was confusing. It was trying to gather data, trying to deal with emotions, trying to deal with the emotions of, uh, you know, constituents and other elected officials. Uh, the communication, you know, a lot of it was trying to handle communication of what does the governor mean here? And, uh, you know, honestly, nobody's ever been in this situation before, all of the laws that we have in place, even the emergency powers that we have, the governor really were set up for hurricanes and uh, tornadoes and that type of an emergency. They weren't set up for pandemics. And so for the governor is even, you know, honestly, I think still sometimes struggling with what does he have power to do and what does he not and trying to make sure he doesn't overstep what he's had. So uh, it's kind of a long winded answer, but it was really is it was a lot of confusion and a lot of data, data gathering, gathering, excuse me. Um, it was a lot of what we were doing, a lot of talking to people, a lot of talking to locals, talking to the governor's office, those kind of things. Sure. Um, reading, a lot of reading. I mean, honestly, I read through some of the reports, some of the studies of how bad could this be? You know, I'm not a virologist, but I've read a number of virologist reports now <laughs> that I never thought I would have read. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I spent a lot of time in, engaging with our local leadership during that period and and you just felt for them because a lot of these people run for office thinking, you know, I can help our city figure out where to spend road money better or something like that. And all of a right. sudden, all of a sudden they're dealing with a pandemic or a plague or making decisions about, that are going to close people's businesses. And I, I did not envy those guys and gals at all. Right. So you, you so mentioned everybody can do their job better, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, you know, the, the constitutional uh, scholars became virologists overnight, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned a little bit about why you became an entrepreneur. So you 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 jumped out of that safety net. You bought a business, and a lot of people couldn't can't imagine even running one business. You run multiple businesses. 
Then you decide to run for office. <laughs> How, what in, what motivated you to do that? A, a glutton for punishment. Um, you know, Henry, I, I was trying to figure out a way to impact things. We, you know, the other choice was honestly to keep buying businesses. I love the I, I love the the business side of things, but um, really, as my wife and I talked about it and prayed about, you know, what what was next for us? Do we keep buying business, trying to grow business, or are there other things that we ought to be doing? Um, there were a number of things about government that I was pretty frustrated with. A lot of the, uh, you know, particularly at the lower end, the, the, the social safety nets and those kind of things, we, we've done a lot of work with at-risk youth, and a lot of the safety nets are really trapping people in poverty, not helping them out, and, and that was something that was very frustrating to me. Um, and so as we considered you know, where to, where to get involved. I felt like either at the state level or the national level was where I wanted to do it because frankly, that's where those programs are driven. Um, and then, uh, you know, honestly, then opportunity came along with, uh, you know, Lanham stepping down and, uh, you know, felt like it was, it was the right opportunity for, uh, for my wife and I, because we really, honestly, I say my wife and I, she's not a state rep, but, you know, we've been married 31 years and we are a team and we, we walked together through this stuff. Yeah, my wife Kimberly is the same way. If you don't have support at home and you're out there taking a beating from people and having to spend all your time with this, it's tough. You, well, you, she's the, honestly, she's the wisdom that I sometimes lack. You know, if she has a check in her spirit about something, I'm like, whoa, I might want to wait just a minute on this because uh, usually she has pretty good sense of that stuff. So, yeah, that's awesome. Kimberly's the same way. I think I've got it figured out and I'll go tell her something. And she's, I see that look on her face. And I'm like, oops, I almost screwed up. <laughs> yeah. You and I have both, uh, we both have quite a bit of experience dealing with the foster system and, and uh, children in those situations. Talk, let's talk a little bit more about your work there. Can you tell me about some progress that's been made? What are you proud of about what's been accomplished with the work that you've done? Well, you know, you don't feel like in the in the CPS system that things are ever accomplished because, frankly, there's always challenges. You know, CPS is dealing with the absolute most difficult uh, human problems that we have. You know, uh, when, when you consider there's 30,000, you know, 30,000 kids at any one time in the foster care system, really more than that, if you count family based safety services, it, it is these are the hardest situations in the world. So to me, I, I, I try never to say I'm going to fix something because, frankly, the system is not broken. I try to focus on, can it be better? And I, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work we did in 2017 to give them the tools. Uh, some of those were financial, but some of those were accountability. Some of those were uh, having it as a standalone agency to give them the ability to, uh, to manage it and to make decisions quickly, because that's one of the things that, you know, frankly, most government entities are not known for is being able to make quick decisions. Um, and, and really, when you're dealing with uh, child abuse situations, you have to be able to make uh, decision. So I think really just giving them the tools. Uh, but I tell you, it's a long, it's something, in fact, I mean, I talked to the commissioner today um, about some some of that. I'm actually I'm, uh, in the House, I'm chair of the Human Services, which is over uh, the DFPS, which is the parent of, uh, not parent, but they, they run the CPS and the Adult Protective Services. And, you know, the implementation of what the bills you pass matter as well. And so, uh, I'm proud of progress, but frankly, there is a tremendous amount to do. So I'm not even close to patting myself on the back for anything because there's a lot of implementation left to do. For those of us, for those of you who just joined us, you're watching The Pulse, brought to you by United Regional Healthcare System. My guest today is State Rep. James Frank. James, we're going to get personal for a second. This is a question we ask all of our all of our guests. Have you seen Tiger King? Uh, <laughs> I am proud to say that I have not seen Tiger King. I, I have talked about it enough, but somebody said, you know, I don't know that there's one redeemable character on that show. And I'm like, well, and I don't really need to see it. I don't, I, yeah. So, uh, no, I have not seen it. I'm sorry. Uh, you may be right. There, there were a couple of characters that I liked, and there's the one guy that lives in Burke Burnett. I've seen him uh, on, on several people's Facebook page, but if you're ever just looking for a car wreck, if you just want to completely remove yourself from everyday life and get away with something that, that you won't have to worry about carrying, carrying with you the rest of your life, uh, pretty interesting show. Well, and I don't watch anything with tiger in it because it reminds me of LSU. So you brought it up. Go Tigers. <laughs> you know, if the, if the football season does not happen this year, the saving grace for me will be that. Don't say that. that 
that'll make LSU the national champion for two years in a row. We'll take I, it. I, I guess I guess that is right. I, I do want you to know I was at the seventy four to seventy two game though. Where he's there in person. For those of y'all talk for the next two days. Yeah, that was Texas A and M. That was LSU at Texas A and M um two two seasons ago. Seven, and yeah, yeah, seven, seven overtime. overtime. Something Great stupid. Game. So you didn't you didn't leave. I've talked to several people that left because I didn't I did not leave. I was there for the whole thing. What was your best day ever in session? You know, that's a, that's a great question. Really, there was, I mean, when we passed a lot of the CPS reforms, because those were real major, called low bill number bills, you know, four hours on the microphone, to, you know, with, so that, that was great and exciting. Uh, actually, at the end of uh, last session, no, I'm sorry, two sessions ago, I had three bills passed just under the wire, including the, uh, the uh, wind turbine bill that protected Shepard. Um, got passed at the last, I mean, it was, it was literally three of my bigger bills and I only get about eight to 10 bills past a session. So it was three of my biggest bills with the biggest one being the windmill or the wind turbine bill passed on the last day. I mean, literally, I didn't know whether they were going to pass, whether they were going to get done and they just got in under that. So it was hard to argue that that wasn't the best day because it, it went from being a very mediocre session for my personal uh, legislative agenda to, almost everything being done in a day. And sure. that is the way the ledge works sometimes. Well, let's talk about that issue for a minute. So sure. what, what started happening a few years ago is we realized that uh, wind farms had the ability to basically get their permits and start development of a wind farm uh, very close to an Air Force base or other military bases without any real advanced notification or opportunity for communities or the military, the government to say, hang on. And so... Uh, you got very involved. Mayor Santiana got involved. Uh, Glenn Barham, who's the head of the Shepherd Military Affairs Committee, uh, was very involved and a bunch of others. Uh, so talk to us about what you actually did to, in that legislation to help with the situation. Well, so not only were they able to build next to military bases, the state was incenting them to yeah. build anywhere in the state. And so what we did is we took away any of the incentives from the state to build near a wind farm. And when you make it less financially, and it was, you know, in, in, in like one of the wind farms we looked at, it was $20 million of incentives. So it's not a, it's not a small amount of money. So it, it essentially made people from a financial incentive want to stay away from military bases. There's other things that we're trying to do that the federal government is doing to make sure that the military uh, can get involved and try to, you know, make decisions and try to talk them out of, uh, building near it, but ours was essentially to take away the financial incentive, which honestly means mostly people don't do it. Yeah, there's, I, never been, there, there's never been, or maybe there's been one wind farm in the state of Texas done without state incentives. It's just why would you build when you don't get the $20 million incentive? Build where you can. Exactly. So there's, there's plenty of land in Texas to go develop. Plenty of land in Texas. Yeah. And the issue for us in a lot of bases is that, you know, one of the, the main reasons Shepherd Air Force Base came here was because we've got vast expanses of flat land without a lot of stuff sticking up in it. And so right. when, you, when you've got uh, brand new pilots just learning to fly, having those low level training routes means, uh, first off, you've got um, ease of access all over the area, plus the weather here is good for flying almost every day of the year. And so when you start to remove that, when you start to have have wind turbines go up, there have been low-level training routes at Shepard that they had to close because of that. And so if that happens enough, you, you, you start to run into a real issue. Yeah, and what, you know, what I liked about that is in discussions with the locals who brought it to me, I didn't even know this issue was there, you and you and a number of others that work on Shepard uh, or work with Shepherd brought it brought it to our attention, but we were able to do it in a way that also respected property rights because it didn't say you can't do it. It just said we're not going to, you know, we're not going to financially incent you to make our military bases harder to use. And so, and that's honestly what we do a lot of times in the ledge. You balance multiple things. You know, a lot of times people think stuff's very easy. A lot of times you have two things that are competing with one another: land, you know, property rights versus economic development. And you know, to me, you've always got to try to balance those things, so that, you know, in the decision making process. Yeah, it's tough because it, especially in Texas, we want to talk about individual rights as much as anything. Sure. But, but this is one of those issues where, OK, 
you own this land and somebody wants to pay you to develop on it. But at the same time, what if it what if it adversely affects our biggest employer right. who happens to be a military base? That is just a That's tough right. conflict to figure out. No, it is. It is. I want to read a comment. Rebecca Rutledge with uh, Daily Planet posted. She says, we had a problem six months back with wage and labor and Representative Frank's office was amazing in assisting us. Thank you. Ah, I like that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's good to hear. That's very good to hear. So we talked a little bit about your best day in the session. What do you feel if you've had one? What was your worst day in session? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of uh, I'm trying to think what sports you have to have a short memory because there's a lot there's a lot of bad days. I mean, there's a lot of days where you lose a lot of days. You know, most of my freshman year um, with with the tenor of session, we were getting I was getting rolled. You know, I voted against the budget. We were. It was just to my to my way of thinking was not a great budget, and it felt like all session was a you know was was a bad thing, um, you know. But to me, I, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I don't think I'm you know Pollyanna in that. I just I, I almost don't have time to think about the things that are going wrong because you got to get back up and go. Uh, and that sounded more heroic than it than it's meant to. It's just I don't have a lot of time to think about that stuff. Um, because you, you got to you really almost have to get ready for the next day always, sure. especially in the ledge, because if you if you get down, if you think, oh, you know, we got beat on that. Um, yeah, you're not going to last very long because you get beat a lot. There's twelve hundred bills and a lot of them I don't like and I get beat and you got to get ready to go the next next time up. Right. Yeah, I played so defense. Good. I played defensive back in high school, and that was the first thing they taught us was forget everything that ever happened before this play because you'll get, you're going to get burnt. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of the best things and the neatest things about the le- the Texas legislature is the teams change some because a lot of times you're not dealing just in Republican-Democrat, which seems like everything is at the federal level. Sometimes you're dealing with urban-rural, and literally the rural Democrats, which there are some, especially in uh, South Texas, uh, in West Texas or far West Texas, uh, will partner with or who has water. And sometimes it's not R and D. So you can be working with somebody on a bill and then five minutes later you're working against them. And so I think that's why the Texas legislature still seems to, you know, and I'm not pretending it's perfect, but it's, but it still works and functions relatively well. We pass a balanced budget every two years. We, you know, we pass a lot of bills. Some of them are even good, uh, every session. Some of them are even good. What <laughs> of the day? Good. I love that. Some of them are even implemented by the agencies the way they're written. So, when does the next session start? Uh, it starts January. It starts the second Tuesday of every odd year. The second Tuesday of every odd year. I think this year it's on the 13th. I haven't been forward thinking enough to look, but I think it's on the. I heard it was on the 13th this year. And January. What, what sort of prep work do you have to do to get ready for that? And when does that start? I mean, to me, that's what the whole interim is for. It's it's all prep work. We've been working on our legislative agenda since since the bills we didn't get passed last session. There's a number of bills, um, you know, that we didn't that we didn't pass. Some of them because we couldn't get the votes. Some of them because, uh, you know, maybe we had some st- stuff in the bill that, in retrospect, we shouldn't have had in there that, you know, um, needed to be fixed. We worked on it during the interim. Uh, there's new things, obviously, with COVID and. Uh, uh, really other things that happen during the interim that come up um, that add that add to your plate. But you basically you prepare the bills and it really happens if you do it right. It happens for that whole 19 months. Um, and it's a lot different. Like I, it's a lot easier for me to prepare for session because, um, you know, I have a libertarian and I would nothing against them. But I, if I if I lost, I think I would be the first one in Texas history. It could happen. But I, I'm already kind of make, able to make plans for this coming session. There's some people who all they're doing right now is running and they won't know until November whether they're in. Their preparation for session looks a whole lot different than mine does. You know, they may not know that they won until uh, early November. They've got to hire a staff and be ready to go by the second week of uh, January. That preparation looks a lot different than the preparation I'm doing. Sure. In my role as the head of the chamber, I'm, I'm mostly focused on issues that affect the economic development. Uh, is there anything that you're aware of or anticipating that'll that'll uh, improve the economic climate for us uh, at the next session? 
Well, you know, I think Texas has historically a pretty good economic climate. I think the property taxes are such that businesses, especially capital intensive businesses, find it pretty challenging in Texas. That's the one area that we're, you know, everybody loves a no income tax. And I think that's that's awesome and is not going to change. In fact, we passed a constitutional amendment that was got overwhelmingly approved uh, to not do the income tax. So that's off the table. But we've got to make sure the property tax, um, which, again, affects businesses uh, pretty substantially, uh, stays. And I say under control. I would argue it's not under control right now, but that it doesn't get worse. And we need to find ways where it gets better. Um, I think clearly there's going to be a lot of discussion of how much power government has to turn on and turn off businesses. Uh, You know, thankfully, my businesses were considered essential businesses by the luck, and I would argue by the luck of the draw, we've had this discussion. Um, you know, to be to be a business operating that somebody can just come turn you off, turn you back on, with as little science as is sometimes being used. Um, you know, as as I've mentioned before, the fact that we allow Walmart to sell the exact same thing we'll close down Coles for. Uh, in a much more crowded environment. Those kind of things make no sense, aren't backed by science, and they're just, yet they're done. Um, we have to give more um, predictability um, to, to businesses, I think, in the state of Texas, and that includes what locals are doing. I mean, I would be very comfortable owning a business in Wichita Falls that operated like, that way, but I would not be comfortable at all owning a business in Austin or Dallas or some of the other places where, I mean, they're still shut down despite very, very low uh, hospital rates and really very low COVID rates in, in those places. Yeah. Mike Hendren and I were talking about that on our radio show this morning, that if, if government never says the word essential again, it'll be too soon. Yeah. It's really disgusting when you think about it, because, you know, the only way people can sit in their homes and say, Hey, we need to stay at home. Well, keep in mind, they're still depending on the truck driver to stay out right? They're still depending on the people who are making the clean water, picking up trash, making their food, you know, planting their food, making their food, delivering it. All of those people have to stay out and take care of the people who are staying at home, keeping a paycheck. It it, it really is a, it is a fascinating um, arrogance, I think, uh, of the people that want to just say, well, stay at home because I'm fine. You know, if you look at the people that lost jobs in the downturn, it, it's almost 40 percent of the low income people lost their jobs. You know, and, and are having trouble, take, you know, having trouble with ends meeting, having trouble taking care of their kids. And because people are sitting in big homes watching Netflix, they think everything's OK. It's not that's not OK. And it's not about the economy. It's about the human suffering. It's about locking people in nursing homes. It's about, you know, we still have our day have for um, for uh mentally handicapped people uh, are uh, still closed where you can't see family. You know, at some point we've got to address a lot of those issues. So sorry, you got me on a soapbox. There. No, that, that's good. And if you, and if you thought there were some inequities before in our, in our uh, society between the haves and the haves nots, it's just going to get worse. Well, and we were making such good progress on finally, finally on employment of uh, from a low, I mean, from a lower income standpoint, but from a black, from a Hispanic, uh, those folks were finally getting uh, wage improvement faster than inflation for the first time in a long, long time. And all of that just went away almost immediately. And yeah. I, I'm hoping we can uh, safely return to that really quickly. And we'll come back to that in just a minute, but we're going to take a break. I want to thank everybody for watching this TV broadcast of The Pulse brought to you by United Regional. For those of you watching live stream on Facebook, stick around. We'll be right back. To everyone watching on Fox, you can visit the Chamber's Facebook page to watch the show in its entirety. Thanks again to Texoma's Fox 18 for airing The Pulse and to Representative Frank for joining us. We will see you next week. All right, we're back. <laughs> we're, we're talking about unemployment for the for the last three months of last year. We were at two point nine percent, and you you as much as anybody know, you know, you, you have to hire people every day. Uh, that that means if somebody's really wanting to work and they can pass a drug test and show up, they've got a job. Absolutely. And so and so then we we knew uh, that was going to change a little bit in March. It got over four percent. And then April was 11.3. And now there's signs that the that the feds are counting people that are 
that are being paid but not working as employed. And so that number could even be higher. And, and some of that situation is temporary because the, the money's going to run out. And so uh, on the one hand, for employers, at some point, you think this might make it easier for people to find jobs, but, but those people are not spending money like they used to. And the big challenge we've got, it doesn't matter if government opens everything back up 100%. If your customers aren't coming out, you're going to struggle. Right. And so we see a lot of restaurants, for example, those are the visible ones that we see on Facebook that now they're they're back able to open 75 percent. But they're having a hard time because people are just not coming back out. And so you go back to the Walmart example. The real solution is any it ought to be any business that can keep its employees and its customers safe should be should be able to open up. Right. Uh, I I certainly agree. I I do find it funny how people kind of almost think differently depending on where they go. If they go to Walmart, then they're fine being in huge crowds. But if they go to a restaurant, they need huge separation. Um, and, and all of it's just, I think all of us were just learning uh, this, you know, this new way of living. And, and the reality is that, you know, the COVID is very dangerous for older people. There is no question if you have pre-existing conditions. Uh, but let's be real, if we're facing the science, the science says COVID is less dangerous for children than the flu. There's virtually no, I know some people may, but that's what at least the math tells you right now in terms of, you know, COVID deaths are happening much less for children. So let's, you know, let's make sure to protect the people we need to protect, but let's also let, uh, you know, let, let kids learn, let kids socialize, those kind of things. That is not a risk that is not worth taking. That's a risk we must take uh, for the good of, honestly, for the good of society. What's the funniest thing you've seen happen on the House floor? <laughs> well, there, there are some funny things, you know, some near fights and that kind of stuff. But I would have to say the funniest is um, a very um, heated and animated discussion between a city representative that was making fun of and trying to remove funding for feral hog eradication and a rural representative, including myself, but I was not the primary one talking, but I was supporting him, that understood that feral hogs are an existential threat for farmers and can literally ruin a business in a night. You know, and there was just such a disconnect. This one person thought it was just hilarious that we anybody would spend money trying to get rid of, and particularly government money, trying to get rid of feral hogs. And there were others of us but it ended up, while it was very, I mean, it really was a very important issue. It was just, it made you realize how much perspective matters. And it was also kind of funny that it was feral hogs and and we won. The money and, stayed in there. And that's that's even more magnified in Texas because we're such a big state geographically. There are people, oh, yeah. yeah, there are people that live in the big cities that just have, that have never experienced what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, they, they think water comes from a tap and food from, comes from a grocery store. Uh, and they forget there's a whole chain of commerce that has to happen uh, beyond that. When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> I'm like 6'5", 265. I've never been little. I don't know. I, I, I guess I wanted to be a banker. My dad was a banker. And so, you know, I went to college not really knowing what I wanted to do, but I went down and got a finance degree. So I don't, I don't really know that I knew what I was going to do. I really don't. Um, I think at some point I wanted to be a fireman, but I think that was pretty early on, you know. Uh, what was your favorite subject in school? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Ma I mean, math was probably my favorite kind of easiest statistics and those kind of things seem to seem to flow um, pretty easily. If, if you could go back to to, to visit with 18 year old James Frank, what's what is one piece of advice you would tell that guy? Mary Alicia Haygood. <laughs> Hopefully that's your wife. Which I did. Yes, by the way, <laughs> that is who I married. Thank you very much. Just to clarify for that's, the audience, right? Yeah, that's funny. That's yeah. I appreciate you clarifying yeah. that. But um, no, uh, I mean, it's it, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I thought about that. Um, it, it would it would definitely be that um, life short, maybe, you know, that, that life is short, not to, not to be too serious about it, but that really. You know, you only you only have one shot. and It's amazing how quick it goes, how quick kids grow up, that kind of stuff. I don't think I don't think people really realize that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. 
So you were very engaged with local government during the first month or two uh, of this situation. Who did you see? Who impressed you? Who went above and beyond to help help this community get through this? I mean, honestly, I think a, a ton of people did. And even some of the people that I was getting frustrated with, uh, I felt like everybody was pulling, trying to pull in the right in the same direction. I think certainly, uh, you know, Judge Gossam and Mayor Santiana, but honestly, yourself, I think you did a great job of stepping up and communicating. Um, you know, the, the, uh, Colonel Bell, actually now General Bell at the Air Force Base did a great job of helping uh, really a lot of people. I mean, the hospital, I think that was the cool thing to me. I realized that most other reps are not dealing in communities and really in Wichita Falls and, you know, people give it a hard time. I love Wichita Falls and it really is a community. You know, if, if you need something done, you can get people in the room and, and you can, you know, you can fuss at each other, you can disagree. And then you still, uh, you know, you make, you make the decisions and you move on and then you go, actually you used to go eat together. Now you didn't for a while, but um, no, so I think a number of folks did a great job. I think the health department did a great job. They, they're probably frustrated at me because, but, you know, from my standpoint, they were so focused on COVID that a little bit they were getting, they were forgetting other things. But then, you know, it could be that I wasn't focused enough on it and was, you know what I mean? I, I don't pretend that I have all, all the answers. There was just a number of people, but I think collectively we did a great job and have done a great job. And it's not over. Yeah, I was pretty impressed with the health department too. And you got to remember, they got a different job than, you know, their focus is different than some others. But just the information that they were able to get out was pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, I, that I've realized, and there's some really fascinating, uh, if you ever get a chance to read Eisenhower's farewell address, he talks about this, but it, it is why politicians need to listen to experts, but you also have to understand that experts, by definition, have a very high level of focus on one particular thing. And sometimes the experts, you know, like Fauci, he's only looking at the impact of COVID. So when you, when you read the reports, like when you read the, the report done from Imperial College in in uh, uh, England, when you read those reports, they say, look, we're only talking about COVID. We're not talking about all the other impacts. And frankly, all the other impacts is what you have to look at when you're making a political decision. The decisions made on COVID are not just COVID decisions. They are decisions that affect mental health. They affect the economy. I mean, if you look just the, the economic impact, everybody goes, what's the economy or grandma? Well, actually, uh, if you look, uh, the UN, is predicting, I believe it was 1.3 million people. I could be wrong on that number, but it is a huge number of people that are going to be subject to uh, hunger and possible starvation because of the economic downturn. That's not rich CEOs. That's the that's the effect of ripping the economy out in the world. You know that there's there are other impacts other than just this one thing. And and to me, that's what. That's what leaders have to look at. They don't just look at one part of the equation. And that's what also is, makes it so difficult. Yeah. And, and you've got the economic impact and then the, the, the um, social and mental impact, too. You know, we had Roddy Atkins on the show previously. Yeah, and for, awesome. for, yeah, for a lot of us, you know, we've got a grandfather that's, that's at Presbyterian Manor and the kids yeah. couldn't see him other than through the window. For, for two months. Now he's finally, he's able to come out because he lives in one of the cottages. But if you've got somebody that's that's elderly and now they're alone and they're having right. they're, issues. Yeah, and you have somebody, you have somebody that has dementia and has no idea why, they, you know, why they've been left alone, why they've been, and by the way, that number was, I'm sorry, I remember the article, it's 130 million people wow. that, that will be, um, that, that have the potential of starvation and will be food deprived based on just what we've done. And so, there are, there, there are a lot of effects. Yeah, and Roddy does a great job, but the mental health effects of, I mean, you know, the education effects of not allowing our kids, despite the lack of risk for them, basically to go, you know, people worry about having a month off. We've in many cases for a lot of these kids, they're having six months off of no education. I know the school district picked up a lot of those, but frankly, there's probably a quarter or a third of them that were just unable to get much of any education during that time. Yeah. That's a big cost. Yeah. And, and imagine the kids whose parents are not engaged in their lives. They don't have access to Wi-Fi or a laptop or a phone. They're off the grid. Right. Those, well, and and I think, honestly, those are the kids that are forgotten uh, on some of these people when they're saying, well, just stay at home, just stay at home. And, you know, they're living in a 5000 square foot house with, you know, six TVs and all the Netflix and Disney Plus and that kind of stuff. That is not the world most people are staying at home to. Let them eat cake. Right. 
yeah, they're staying in an apartment complex. They're staying in, you know, a lot different places than um, some of the elite people that are talking about that are, are, are staying. And you know this, we get complacent because we don't, we don't engage with a lot of people outside of our, you know, the, bubble. the normal life. Yeah, the bubble. That's a great, bubble. great way to put it. Well, we, and, all, we all have a bubble. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we all have a bubble. So I've got a couple of comments I want to read um, on Texoma's homepage on their Facebook page. Steve Jackson, who's a city councilor, District 5, just wants to say thanks for protecting Shepherd Air Force Base. I worked as an aircraft mechanic for the 80th for 32 years. It provided me and my family very well. Steve, thanks for watching. And uh, I want to go back to a, a comment and a question. Glenn Barham, who's the, the head of the Shepherd Military Affairs Committee, has asked, if you could clarify, uh, defining early notification of development to help the military and developers mitigate conflicts. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm reading that. Yeah. I mean, that, that is something really we, we don't have. So right now at the state level, we would have to, we would have to, excuse me, we'd have to add that. I know the federal government is working on that because, you know, honestly, the federal government, you know, I love working at the state level if the federal government would do what the federal government should, which the federal government is the one who should be protecting air force bases and the state government should be doing the things that the state does, you know, water roads, uh, all, you know, schools, all, all of that kind of stuff. The federal government is primarily the one that should be driving it. They have a clearinghouse system already. It just wasn't functioning very well. And then, uh, so I think it is something we can do from a state level. Uh, but it's something that should primarily be done at a federal level from a consistency standpoint and from a tech protecting the military bases, which is, you know, which is really a federal issue. What advice would you give somebody who's considering running for office for the first time? Ooh, yeah, it depends. It depends what office uh, study, you know, so that you know what you're doing, uh, know what that person actually does. I think sometimes people think about getting an office because they, they like a particular issue. But uh, to your point earlier, when you get in office, you don't get to just work on the issue that you wanted to work on. When you're in office, you know, if your mayor, uh, Mayor Santiano doesn't get to decide what he wants to work on all the time, all of a sudden he's working on COVID or all of a sudden he's working on a drought. And same thing with me. You know, I can go in wanting to do one thing, but as your representative, you your job is to represent. As a mayor, your job is to, you know, you represent everybody in that. Um, so make sure you understand what what it is. I think the other is network. Um, you know, the more people you know in a community, the more you know, the broader cross section of people you know, the better. I think one of the things I really never realized how good you know, both being in banking and then being in the business world, uh, being involved in things like the chamber um, and, and a ton of nonprofits and, and involved in church and church leadership, those kind of things all made the move, frankly, to politics very easy because all of a sudden. You know, when I decided to run, I knew tons of people, you know, and not not just the movers and the shakers. I just knew tons of people that got, that got stuff done. And so I think the more you network and the more you get involved, the easier a move into politics um, can be. All right. Next piece of advice. What advice would you give to a young entrepreneur? Um, I, I'd probably be the same network. Uh, I, I, I think none of us are really all that bright in our own. <laughs> Maybe it's just me, but the more people, you know, the more people you talk to, the more people you ask exper their experience, the more you learn. Um, and I think some people think, well, I just know how to do it. I'm going to go do it. And I, and I, I think part of, part of my success or what success I've had, and I've certainly had some failures as well has been because I hadn't been scared to ask people. And I've made a habit of asking other people that I, that I find successful. How did you do it? How did you do it? And I tried to learn from them. Um, and the other is to go for it. I, I talk to people all the time that tell me they want to go into business. Well, wanting to going wanting to go into business and going into business are two different things. You know, I can want to do something, but if I never take that step, then I never went into business. You know, it yeah. try it. It might yeah. hurt, but it might not. The the hardest thing to do is start. We've all got ideas. We all have ideas. I got a, I got a long list of stuff that I want to accomplish, but starting is always the hardest thing to do. Yeah, I had a uh, the the board chairman of the bank I worked at when it was Parker Square a long time ago uh, told me this daily uh, riddle. I guess he said, "There's five birds on a wire, and three of them decide to leave. How many are left? How many are left? 
No, that's right. five. Because the three just decided to leave. Until you actually flap your wings, nothing happens. You know what I mean? You can't just yeah. decide to go into business. You actually have to do it. And so I think some people are just, they don't want to make that, you know, they're, they're scared. And I would say it's not going to hurt. And, and most of the time, the failures you can move on from, you know, and learn from them. I, some of the biggest mistakes I make, I chalk up to my MBA, which I don't actually have an MBA. But I think at this point, I have an MBA in business. You've earned it. Yeah, I've, I've earned it and paid for it. All right. Next piece of advice. If somebody is interested in fostering or adopting kids, what advice you give them? Well, first, if they're even thinking about it, I would say thank you. Uh, I would definitely talk to other people. <laughs> yeah, sound like a broken record. Talk to other people that have done it. Um, and, and then I, I would I would advise doing some uh making sure you work with at-risk kids. Uh, you know, most of the kids that you're going to deal with in the foster care, uh, you know, they're awesome kids, but they are just like the two boys that we adopted, you know, but they have, they have, you know, there's a reason they were in the foster care system and there's special challenges uh, that we didn't have. There's special blessings, but there's special challenges that we didn't have with our, uh, my wife and I's four biological boys. Um, and again, there's special blessings with that, uh, but it requires different, a different type of parenting. So I would, you know, I would just encourage them to, you know, talk to people. And then I would also encourage them to start working with those at-risk kids. I think one of the things that helped Alicia and I, we had spent about 15 years working in the bus ministry. And, uh, you know, that was with almost all at-risk kids and working at Straight Street and other places. So we had to, you know, we, we certainly weren't perfect at it, but we knew what we were getting into. Yeah, I, I found it amazing because I when I was when I was younger, I don't think I ever heard people talk about fostering and adopting and I don't know if there was a, a bigger stigma to it years ago but once we once we started fostering and then once we adopted I, it seems like every other person I talked to either was a foster parent or they had been foster kids or had adopted a kid or was adopted themselves and so I think there's a lot more open conversation about it nowadays yeah well and it may also speak to you're hanging around some really good people I mean seriously because it uh, I mean the people that will do that it's it's a very hard thing yeah, uh, it's a very challenging thing, but it's incre it's incredibly important and needed. That best thing we ever did. Yeah. Who inspires you? Um, yeah, broken record. My wife inspires and challenges me. Uh, you know, I used to. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think. My brothers challenged me. My dad did. Mom did. Um, if you're talking famous people, Billy Graham, until he just passed away, was my favorite uh, living person. Now I, I still don't know who I'm gonna replace him with <laughs> let us know when you figure it out yeah yeah to our audience you are watching the pulse brought to you by united regional my guest today is state rep james frank james earlier you told us the shocking news that you did not watch tiger king <laughs> yes. what, what do um, you watch? what do you watch? Uh, you know right now we're watching uh blacklist which is actually pretty i mean it's 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 a great show it's a little little gory violence sometimes uh and then uh you know if if i want to give my wife a break we might watch the hallmark channel although sometimes it's a little more difficult to follow the plots there they have plots there's only one movie in a hallmark <laughs> they're all the same they just change scenery they're, they're all, all they're all the same but they're all simple you know when life is complicated sometimes you just want to watch a hallmark movie is the way my wife but i only watch it with my wife in the room. I have never yet watched a Hallmark movie by myself. So Good. I'm proud of that. Good for you. Yeah, it was funny. When this first started, um, we have Netflix and I've used it a lot. But then Kimberly, we also have Amazon Prime because Kimberly shops every single day. But I had never messed around with the, the TV, uh, with Amazon on TV. And so for some reason, I started looking and found all these old shows and started watching like the first season of you know, the Dukes of Hazard and yep. Columbo. And we got stuck on, on, um, oh shoot, James, James Garner, the Rockford Files. Rockford Files, sure. You talk about simple. If you look at crime shows today, there's 10 different characters and they do crossovers and there's all sorts right. of plot lines and stuff. His is, he's the main character. There's a couple of supporting actors and there's one plot and almost pretty much it's almost always done in one episode. Yep. And it's, and it's awesome. And I wish I wish I had seen more stuff with James Garner because he's amazing. Yeah. Yep. So um, what about reading? Do you read? 
You know, yeah, I, I read some. Actually, I've just gotten uh, – I, I ride bikes a lot, as you know, or you may not know, but I, I, I do a lot of bike riding, so I've started doing the Audible books. I've got earphones that are good enough to do that, and it's a couple of great – actually, I have a couple of great books. Just got finished with Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or um, Chaos or Community. Uh, I vote Community. Um, he's fascinating. Actually, one of the most well-read people I've ever – just brilliant, man um, – but also from a, uh, then from a political standpoint, uh, uh, Arthur Brooks uh, has a couple of great books, Love Your Enemy and uh, Conservative Heart. They just do a phenomenal job of explaining, you know, frankly, explaining why limited government and, and, and frankly, a conservative mindset is much better for people uh, than essentially the government, than, than, a, than a huge government. I, and I love, I think there's a hugely important, appropriate role of government. I'm not a, you know, not an anarchist and I'm not a, but. But I, but I also think that, that, that people are, you know, people are best when they're able to uh, able to encouraged and challenged and rewarded, frankly, for uh, taking care of themselves that, you know, that earned, um, uh, you know, the kind of the, the pride of work and that kind of stuff to me is tremendously important and is something that we've really lost. And that's one of the reasons I love the economic development and uh, those kind of things. It's one of the reasons I love what you do. And I think it's 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 so important that we that we challenge people. And, and really, unfortunately, there's too many people that feel like the American dream is dead. And I think we need to uh, make sure structurally that it is not dead and that we need to encourage and challenge uh, and reward people for uh, persevering and, and doing that. Too many times we reward people for doing bad behavior, which is something no parent would do. But yet we do it. You know, if you're an irresponsible business, then and you blow it, then then we're going to bail you out. If you make, you know what I mean? The worst decisions you make, the more we're going to reward you, which is the dumbest. Yeah, just, it, yeah. It's the, but it's the way government works. And yeah, it, you're right. So you mentioned, you mentioned that you choose community. What, what can you see, what can Wichita Falls do, whether we're talking about government or, uh, or just the community, what can we do to make our area more entrepreneur friendly? Um, Say network again. I, I think sometimes everybody cloisters in their own bubble, and sometimes the the folks that have made it or the folks that are successful aren't talking to the people, aren't talking enough to the people that are trying to figure it out. You know, I think basically the you know the model of the older teaching the younger, and the mentorship and the uh, what do you call it when the, cra the craftsman uh, the apprenticeship that is almost non-existent. And so I think it's something that we, we need to do a better job. You know, if you're a 16 or 18 year old trying to figure out how to get started, how do you do that? We need to try to make sure they have a way to, you know, to start their trade. We need to make sure that we're, uh, you know, facilitating that communication. I've got a, a DC question. I don't know if you have the answer to this or not, but Steve Haviland with Think of IT has asked a question. Has the Texas leadership in Congress considered supporting the banking association suggestions about forgiving PPP loans under hundred K any idea? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not in Congress, but uh, I'm, I'm in the Texas house. I, I mean, most of the PPP loans, as I understand them, they're going to be forgiven. In fact, there was just a flexibility added that gave you almost six months to spend it. So the way I, I'm, I'm a little confused about the question because the way I look at it, Unless I'm reading it wrong, virtually all of the loans of any size are going to end up with 100% forgiveness. You know, initially it was just two and a half or I think two and a half months of expenditures or no, maybe two months. I can't remember the exact details, but um, so, yeah, so I, I may have to punt on. Sure. We'll, we'll follow up with Steve because I know Steve's been real involved in helping put on some some uh, webinars, helping people navigate uh, PPP and EIDL. Uh, I don't know if James just disappeared on me for a second, but I do want to mention this while we're waiting for James to come back. The other part of the, the federal relief program is called the EIDL. It's the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. It also comes with a potential grant of $1,000 per employee up to 10 employees. So there's a potential $10,000 grant available for companies under 500 employees. And so check it out. Let me know if you need help with it. You can uh, search the SBA website, just Google apply for EIDL and you can find it. It's a real simple process. James, are you there? He's been real involved. I'm back on the other. Some uh, webinars helping people navigate. Uh, I don't see it, but I heard you. Uh, I don't know if James just 
I switch rooms on you. Okay, if you can mute, mute that video so we can just hear you and not that. There we go. Is that better? Yeah, that's good. Okay. okay. We, we got about five minutes left before we need to close the show. Um, what else? We talked earlier about starting. What haven't you started that, that you've got on your bucket list? What haven't I started? Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, it's uh, – that's a great question. I don't, I don't know what's next. It's, it's interesting. You know, I've got the political, I, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, this coming, you know, this coming session, that's what I, I'm, I'm committed to being in the Texas house for the foreseeable future. As long as I'm doing that, I'm probably not going to do a lot of acquisitions or anything on the business side. Cause frankly, I just don't have uh, time to do any more than I'm doing from a business side. Um, I hadn't started having grandkids you know, no pressure on my one son that's married or the other two that might be close. So I haven't started on that. All right. If you have any ideas, let me know. No. I, so, so what are your, what are your long-term political plans? I really, I love it in the Texas house. I, you know, I looked, obviously we just had a congressional spot open up and I, you know, I looked at it and uh, chose very easily not to do it, frankly, because I just didn't feel like it fit. You know, I'm 53, and with where we are right now, with the businesses still there, I didn't know what I would do with them. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't really feel like I want to spend the almost probably 10 to 20 years in the U.S. Congress that you need to uh, in order to make an impact. You know, you're one of 435. Uh, you know, I'm finally in a position in the Texas House. I was a chair for the first time last session, and my a chairman, and so I was really able to make some significant impact or what I hope is significant impact in that role. And I really think that's what I need to be doing for the, for the foreseeable future is to make an impact at the Texas house. Sure. Who's the cook at home? Who, uh, my wife does all the cooking. I will cook, but if I cook, I'm going out to a store. Uh, the two things I cook, I cook Saturday morning breakfast, eggs, bacon, sausage, and biscuits every Saturday morning. And then I grill. But I always think it's funny. I get, I get, you know, I'll grill steaks, burgers, and brats. Um, I get all the credit. And when I look at it, my wife has done everything else. She shopped. She's fixed all of the sides, typically either marinated the steak or got them ready. I throw them on the grill, flip them a couple times, and I get amazing credit for cooking dinner when really she does almost all that work. So I recognize it, but I still take a bow. Heck yeah, that that's the typical manly man stereotype, right? The, the wife, she buys everything. She she made sure we had clean plates and utensils. We go out there. She does everything. She she's washing the dishes after the fact. Although I don't know about you, we've got kids washing the dishes now. I, I, probably only three to four years ago, I started washing the dishes every time, and my wife loves it every time. It's like the sexiest thing I can do is wash the dishes, and so. I really, no matter who cooks, I usually do the dishes. That's pretty funny. Yeah, if I, had, if I had any advice for young married people, it would be that, guys, wash the dishes. Got it. Or teach your kids to. We've got one of our daughters. That's Jennifer's job is washing the dishes and putting them up. Yep. yep. Where did yep. you go to high school? Uh, Ryder. Yeah, I went to Ryder High School. Ryder Raider. So we got Yeah, we started dating in high school. Gotcha. So we got about a minute left before we have to wrap up. What's your take on this whole idea of, of new high schools? Uh, I'm going to pass on that. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see the idea. Um, I, I think it's unfortunate the timing, because I think it's going to be tremendously challenging if we're at 15 or 20% unemployment. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I think it's also a challenge because I think there's a real divide about whether it's one school, two schools, you know, it, 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 that makes it really hard. And I think unless and until we really get um, in agreement as a community of the direction, it's hard to be voting on the direction and a bond issue at the same time, because if you're a no on either one, you're going to be a no. And that's, that's not telling you my personal feelings. That's just telling you my, I think it's going to be hard to pass unless people agree that this is the right direction to go and then we can work on uh, the bond, but that's you know that's not my that's not my gig. No doubt, it's a tough one. All right, we got thirty seconds left. Anything else you want to share with the audience? No, I just I really appreciate you. I appreciate the chamber. 
you know, and, and what y'all do for economic development, but I would just encourage all of us. I hear people fuss sometimes about economic development. Economic development is all of our jobs. You know, we all need to be cheerleaders for the community. Uh, we need to be doing whatever we can uh, to make the quality of life here better uh, and, and to help bring businesses here in town. Yeah, that's it. Thanks, James. Well, that's it for today's edition of The Pulse. Thank you to Representative Frank and to our sponsor, United Regional Healthcare System. The show can be found in its entirety on the Chamber's Facebook page, at texomashomepage.com, and this Sunday on KJTL Texomas Fox 18. Join me next Wednesday with my guest, Wichita Falls City Manager Darren Liker. We'll see you then.